Scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 3, and uh, we go from uh, verses uh, 13 verses 13 to 15, and uh, we read this because this is another one of those passages that we've been looking at in this, in connection with this eighth chapter of the Westminster, talking about Christ's mediatorial work and uh, looking at the different ways in which Old and New Testament reveal that work. And uh, so here we have the very first uh, case, really, where the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is uh, foretold in Genesis 3, the proto-evangel, as it's sometimes called, first uh, proclamation of the gospel. Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Then would you turn please to John chapter 8. Fairly long passage uh, from John 8 verses 31 to 59. That's the text for the sermon. John 8 from verse 31, and after that I'll read from the Westminster Confession. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring. And have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, You shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham, but as it is, You are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You were doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered him and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honour my Father, and you dishonour me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You're not yet fifty years old, and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then from Westminster chapter 8 and article 6, which you can find in your um, bulletin, This is uh, still the chapter on Christ the Mediator and Article 6. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of the woman which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world being yesterday and today the same and forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we are deeply in need of wisdom and knowledge and the, the um, application also of the truth. And therefore, we need your word to teach us. We need your 
your Son, who is the wisdom of God made flesh, and we need your Spirit also to apply these things to us. And Father, we pray that you would grant us that help and the growth that comes from that help once again today as we hear your word preached. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, a couple of thousand years ago, the Lord Jesus accomplished redemption. That's the language that we find in scriptures and also in the confessions, that idea of something that's accomplished, a finished work, accomplished once and for all. And that happened, as I say, a couple of thousand years ago when the Lord Jesus died on the cross and then rose again. But the question that is before us this afternoon as we're working through the Westminster in this eighth chapter on Christ's mediatorial work is how could it be that the people who were believers in God prior to that time, prior to that work of Christ on the cross and the accomplishment of salvation, how could it be that those people could be saved also? How could that happen even sometimes centuries before the Lord Jesus came into this world if the redemption was not actually accomplished until New Testament times? Uh, You may know that uh, Leonardo da Vinci designed a helicopter in the late 15th century. But so far as I know, unless uh, something happened I'm not aware of, that no helicopter actually took off the ground until the mid-20th century, around about uh, 1940, as I understand it. And uh, it's all very well for us to say that uh, da Vinci pointed to the helicopter but we would be highly unlikely to say that the helicopter in the 20th century uh, somehow enabled da Vinci's helicopter to take off as well in the 15th century. So how can we say that the Lord Jesus' accomplishment of salvation in the New Testament times actually worked for those who lived in the time when the design was there before them, but the accomplishment of it was not? That's the question that is addressed by the Westminster in this sixth article. And we get some insight into that, some answer to that from John chapter 8. It is obviously a very long text, so I can only be uh, brief in considering the many details of it, but I will try to draw those main points together under three headings. First of all, what we learn from this text in John 8, what we learn about true believers... Secondly, what we learn about those who reject the Lord Jesus. And thirdly, what we learn about the Lord Jesus himself. So those are the three points. Uh, You could summarise it by saying true believers, unbelievers and the Lord Jesus. And what we learn about those three from this uh, passage. In the first place then, I'd like to draw together various points the Lord makes. There's a lot of, uh, as usual with John, in his uh, gospel and epistles, there's a lot of um, overlapping and a lot of uh, circling around and coming back to certain phrases, key phrases and thoughts, adding little bits of information each time, each cycle as he goes. But trying to gather some of that together, the main points I would suggest are these, uh, that we are told that, first of all, true believers are those who hear and recognise the word or the words of God. They recognise the truth. They recognise the truth that Jesus embodies 
and the truth that he speaks and which is revealed throughout the whole of the Scripture, Old and New Testament. And we recognize that because God is at work in all of his people, enabling us to do so. Moreover, the true believer will hear that word not just in some outward way with our ears, but with the whole person, with our heart, our mind and our soul. Uh, there is in the true believer, because God works in us in that way, there is a whole person commitment to the word of God, to the, which is the word of Christ. And because it is a whole person commitment, it is something that continues not something that we start and then put aside and forget, but something that we keep coming back to. And Lord willing, we do in our own devotional life. There may be times when you miss the reading of Scripture, but you come back to it again and again. You do if you are a true disciple. If you're not, you read it and you never get around to it. You tell yourself, I know I should be reading God's Word, but it doesn't happen because the desire for it is not there. Uh, so one thing that comes out of that whole person commitment, that there is a continuation in the word, verse 31. And what also comes out, because it is a whole person commitment, that it is something that we keep or do, verse 51. Uh, these things are really crucial indicators of whether or not you are a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you treat his word? Is it something that you read regularly? Is it something that you continue in? Is it something that you love? And is it something that you live? In other words, that you do. Those are the crucial questions. Second observation about the true believer, and equally important, verse 42, if you have God as your Father, then you will love the Lord Jesus Christ because he proceeds from the Father and he's sent by the Father and he's glorified by, by the Father and he's one with the Father. He is, he says it himself in verse 58, he says that he is the, he is the I am, the great I am. Uh, that's the word that is a translation, the English words I am translate the Hebrew Yahweh, the name of God. And Jesus says he is I am. And uh, so verses 54 and 58 uh, show this unity between the Father and the Son. And that love of the Father and the Son together is really demonstrated in everything we do. It's demonstrated in our worship. It's demonstrated in our obedience to God's laws. It's demonstrated in our sense of gratitude, in our prayers. It's demonstrated in our Christian hope. It's demonstrated in uh, the way that we relate to others who are likewise joined to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his body, the church, as a whole. It is demonstrated in our witness, our evangelism, and also, as I've mentioned, in the attention we give to his word. That is where we show whether we love the Lord Jesus and likewise, therefore, whether we know the Father by the the way we are with these things. Uh, because, of course, if you, if you love the Lord Jesus, then you love his word, his words, and uh, you also love all these other things in life that are centred upon him and point to him. 
Uh, the Lord also, in this passage, gives promises that uh, apply to the believer, and so they're also part of the description of the true believer here. So it's not just a matter of saying uh, that this is, uh, these are things that characterize the true believer in terms of how we behave, but uh, also promises that apply to us, that also define who we are uh, and by telling what happens to us. And one of those promises that comes out here is that the Son of God and the words that he speaks, the truth, these will set you free. They will set you free indeed. They will set you free from Satan and from sin, verses 32 and 36, from the guilt of sin, from the penalty of, of uh, sin, from the power of sin, so that we are no longer slaves in bondage to sin and to the devil. And also set us free from death. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Verses 51 and 52. It uh, doesn't mean we won't die physically, but it means that death will not hold us. Uh, it means that we will not experience the eternal death of hell. Well, these are some of the effects of the mediator's work on those who hear his words and believe them, believe in him, and also love him. But how does that apply? Does it apply to the Old Testament saints as well? Well, the Lord Jesus answers that question by using Abraham as an example, which uh, we can easily understand why he chose Abraham, because the Jews regarded Abraham as their father and themselves as children of Abraham, verse 33. And they saw that as being all the evidence or all the proof that they needed that they were right with God, the very fact that they were physically descended from Abraham. In verse 56, the Lord says that Abraham saw his day, saw Jesus' day, and rejoiced. In other words, Abraham, way back in the Old Testament, fixed his eyes upon the coming Messiah, upon the Lord Jesus, and rejoiced in the salvation that he knew was coming through that Christ. Rather than claiming that Abraham somehow had earned that salvation by his own good deeds, or that he had earned it or deserved it because he was descended from, from somebody else, he didn't argue in that way, but he looked to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And Romans 4 makes much the same point. It makes the point that Abraham was saved by faith, in the promises concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, which was then credited to him as righteousness. It was not earned by him, it was counted as his, credited to him. Think, how is a believer today saved? How, how is anybody today saved? It is by receiving Christ's word, isn't it? By believing in the Lord Jesus and by loving him. So what did Abraham do? And what did the Old Testament saints do? They received Christ's word, his words in their Old Testament form, and he believed in the coming Messiah, and he loved the coming one. Same faith in the same Christ with the same result, the same outcome. And that is why the Westminster in this article says that the efficacy and the virtue and the benefits 
of Christ's New Testament accomplishment were communicated or applied to the elect in all ages by means of the revelation that they had, the revelation of Christ that they had available at each of those times in which they lived. And uh, Hebrews 11, verses 39 and 40, is very clear on this as well, where it says that the Old Testament saints, having gained approval through their faith, just like Abraham, faith uh, linking them to Christ, the Christ to come, through which the benefits of Christ were imputed to them, uh, those Old Testament saints approved through their faith uh, not because of their works, did not yet receive what was promised. They hadn't actually seen the promised, uh, the promise uh, fulfilled. They hadn't seen the coming of Christ because God had provided something better for us, uh, the coming of Christ in New Testament times. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Um, there's a, uh, a, an authority, a great uh, authority on the Westminster Assembly uh, today, a man by the name of uh, Chad Van Dixorn. And uh, he has a commentary on the Westminster. And he has this uh, great statement in it that encapsulates this quite well. He says that um, redemption, the redemption that Christ accomplished is so certain that it is treated as if it were finished before it had started. That's a great way of explaining it. That what Christ did on the cross a couple of thousand years ago is so certain that it's treated as if it had already been finished before it started. Uh, you could look at it this way too, if you like, that it's like getting an advance on your wages uh, before they're actually due, in a sense, but you may sometimes get an advance on them. Only in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wages that he won for us, that he earned for us, those wages and the advance that the Old Testament saints got on that is even more certain than any advance you might get from your boss on your wages today. Sadly, not all the Jews who heard the Lord Jesus teaching these things believed them. And the Lord had very strong words to speak against those who rejected him. We look at that in our second point and uh, what we learned from that, those strong words spoken to unbelievers at that time, which also apply to unbelievers today. And the root of their problem, as it is today, the root of their problem is that they had no love for the Father or for the Son. Verse 42. And therefore, because they had no love for Father or the Son, they had no love for the Word of God. The Word of God had no place in their lives. Verse 37 and 47. And maybe you know how that goes from your own experience. If there's somebody that you really, really don't like, that you maybe even have some hatred towards that person, it's very hard to listen to their words. Oh, you hear them. You hear the words with your ears. But you don't really want the words to sink in. And indeed, for the apostate Jews, the Lord Jesus says, you can't hear. You're unable. You can't hear, that is to say, inwardly, verse 44. They couldn't hear the word of God because they were, in fact, slaves of Satan and of sin. And that 
that uh, slavery to Satan was demonstrated in a number of ways. It was demonstrated by the fact that they kept on committing sin without repentance. Verse 34. Though they claimed to be Abraham's children, that was only true physically. Spiritually, they weren't Abraham's descendants at all because if they had been, they would have been doing the same deeds that Abraham was doing, namely fixing his eyes on the Messiah to come and loving the Messiah to come and believing all the word of Christ that was uh, put before him about that uh, in the Old Testament in his own time. If they were truly Abraham's descendants, they would have been doing that. They would have been rejoicing in his day the coming of the Christ. But they were, in fact, spiritually speaking, children of the devil. And um, that was, that's really the problem with all believers, unbelievers today. Uh, the unbeliever is by nature uh, of the devil. And uh, unbelievers, you may know some, who are very lovely people, very nice, very friendly, very noble in a way. And yet at heart, if they don't know the Lord Jesus unbelievers, they don't know the Lord Jesus and they are, whether they realise it or not, in bondage to Satan. And the devil, as the Lord Jesus said, has always been a liar and he's always been a murderer and he's always been a rejecter of the truth and a rejecter of the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 42 to 47. And therefore the unbeliever, as long as he's under that bondage, also rejects the truth rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, rejects the, the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ speaks, and even in some cases uh, will seek to uh, murder him, so to speak, to kill off that uh, word of Christ, even if he can't access the person, Christ himself, because they are children, they are slaves of the devil. Uh, we see how far that reaction went in the case of the apostate Jews. When Jesus pointed out that Satan was their father, then they retorted that Jesus is a Samaritan. Big insult there. Jesus is a Samaritan and Jesus has a demon, verse 48. And when Jesus promises them their eternal life for those who keep his word, and this is really quite ironical, that here's this great promise of eternal life to those who hear the words of Christ who listened to them. And instead of taking that and rejoicing, as Abraham did, instead of that, they hear that word and their response is, well, we said Jesus had a demon, now we're sure of it. He must be a demon if he's promising eternal life because Abraham couldn't do that, he died. And the prophets couldn't do that, they died. And here's this person who comes along and says, I can bring you eternal life. So he's claiming to be greater than the prophets. He's claiming to be greater than Abraham. He must have a demon, certainly. That is their argument. And when the Lord Jesus claimed to be God, when he called himself the great I am, Yahweh, the pre-existent God who was there before Abraham was even born, then they want to kill him as a blasphemer. Verse 58 and 59. Now, as I say, not all unbelievers react as violently as that. But the underlying hostility against the Lord Jesus and against the word and against the truth of God will remain there and underlying that, the bondage to Satan will remain there and the inability to break free will remain unless God intervenes in his grace. 
the Lord issues a strong warning to these apostate Jews. And it is a warning that too uh, really would apply to unbelievers today if they would listen. In verse 35, Jesus says that the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. In other words, even God's own covenant people, the Jewish nation, even they who were God's household, even they, if, yet if they remained slaves of the sin, slaves of sin, slaves of the devil in their hearts, then they wouldn't stay in that house. They wouldn't remain there. To remain in Jesus' house, you need the Son to set you free so that you can receive his eternal inheritance with him. And otherwise, you won't stay in that house. And you won't stay in this house, in this house of God as we often refer to it. You won't stay in the church. You won't stay in the covenant unless you love the Lord Jesus Christ and truly receive his word in your heart. Those who seek what the devil offers and who finally reject the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth and who seek to earn their salvation by other means, if they even seek it at all, for example, by their own works, will at the end go with their father, the devil, not with the Lord Jesus Christ in his house. Well, we've already seen a number of uh, important truths in this concerning the Lord Jesus as we've considered true believers and unbelievers. But in the third and final place, I want to draw together uh, some of the truths that are about the Lord Jesus that are spread throughout this, this text. I'll run through them fairly quickly uh, before addressing this question again of how it is that Old Testament saints could be saved. Uh, first, we're told that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who is in the house of God forever with his Father, verse 35. We are told that he also proceeds forth and has come from the Father, sent by him rather than coming on his own initiative, verse 42. Uh, sent, of course, as the word made flesh in order to bring and to fulfill the word of God, a word which he saw and heard from alongside the Father, verses 38 and 40. Uh, thirdly, the Father glorifies the Son, verse 54, and then, as we have seen, he and the Father with the Holy Spirit are one, they are equally divine, the great I am Yahweh, the eternal, self-existent and unchanging God, verse 58, the same yesterday, today and forever, Hebrews 13, verse 8. So those are, if you like, the credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that John is presenting to us. For these are the credentials that he needed in order to be able to set slaves free. He needed to be greater than Abraham. And he needed even to be greater than the devil. And greater than sin and more powerful than death. Otherwise he would not have been able to set us free. But you see, these are also the credentials that he needed to be able to set slaves free from out of all ages since the time of the fall. In order to deliver saints who lived and died well before his incarnation. He didn't need a time machine in order to go back there and save them. 
He needed to be the infinite God who transcends all the boundaries of time and of history. He needed the one who as well to be man, a man who could offer his life for his people, both God and man resulting in a sacrifice of such power and value, infinite value, that it could spill right over into all of history, back into the past, and create and cleanse faithful saints like Abraham or Moses or David or the other saints of the Old Testament who lived centuries before the Lord Jesus finished that work. Before Abraham was born, I am. That's why he could do that. And that is why Revelation 3, 30, sorry, 13 verse 8 could uh, depict this, this vision of the Lamb with his book, the book of life, with the names of all the elect, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, people from our past, our present and our future, all written down and written down before the world even began from the foundation of the world. For the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, has the right and the power to have such a book, so to speak, and to be able to apply the efficacy and the virtue and the benefit of everything that book promises, and it promises life, spiritual life, a spiritual relationship with God, and eternal life, as well, ultimately, as the restoration of physical life. And the Lord Jesus had the right and the power to have that book with that promise, a promise made to the elect from every age. There is, however, also in this an implicit warning. Revelation 13 says that everyone whose name is not in that book will go to captivity and death. The bondage to Satan will remain in place for all those who do not wish to be set free. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, strange, things happen when it, when, strange things happen when it comes to uh, slavery. There's a, a book written by the famous Russian writer Leo Tolstoy his uh, last book, a book by the name of Resurrection, in which uh, there's a landowner, a wealthy landowner, who uh, is in some ways quite modern. He wants to emancipate his serfs. He wants to set the peasants free. So he goes around and tells them, I'm setting you all free. You're not my serfs or servants anymore. You don't have to work my land for virtually nothing. You're free. And they don't want it. They're suspicious of it. Why would, there must be a, an ulterior motive. Why would you do it? We don't want to be free. All that newfangled stuff, this is a new idea. We don't want that. We want to stay exactly as we are, serfs like slaves to the landowner. And that's the way many want to remain. And if that's what they want to do, if they want to remain in bondage to Satan, then that is what will happen. The work of the Lord Jesus does bring life rather than death. And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ does bring freedom rather than that bondage. But his person and his works cannot be despised with impunity. For he is indeed the great I am. Don't insult the power and the efficacy of his work. Be assured of it and trust in it. That's the best way not to despise it. To be assured of it and to trust in it. To trust not in yourself, but in him. Not in your pedigree, not in your pedigree as children of the Reformation, 
or children of the RCNZ, but in the infinite power of our God and mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the power and efficacy of the work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf, a power and efficacy that transcends time and is therefore more than sufficient to save men from all ages. Father, will you help us to fix upon the Lord Jesus Christ himself as the ground of that salvation, rather than relying on our our poor works or the fact that we are uh, children of the Reformation or such things or any, any other ground but Christ alone. We pray it in his name. Amen. Westminster, uh, in this article, spoke of the benefits of Christ's redemption applied to both Old and New Testament believers. Uh, Psalter Hymnal 386 uh, sings of how vast those benefits are. They had to be vast in order to cover all history like that, all those millions of people throughout history. Psalter Hymnal 386 will stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology.
after the blessing is our doxology, also from the Psalter, hymnal number 280, stanzas 1 and 3. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>